Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, a leaked report suggests that bidders for the LRT project in Hamilton were already backing away from the project. Does it matter? We talked to a former mayor and the author of the story. And what will be the reaction after the U.S. takes out Iran's top military man? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. LRT on the docket. A leaked report says that bidders from the LRT project were already backing away from the project when it was canceled last month. Here is Chris Jacobson, acting LRT project director for the city. He was on with Rick Zamprin on the Bill Kelly Show this morning. If you read the information that's contained in that risk assessment that was obtained from, from Metrolinx, it may make it seem like, oh, the, the project was, was in trouble. Uh, that was never an indication that, w- that was given to us by, uh, uh, by Metrolinx. And quite frankly, uh, again, on these types of, of projects, uh, having partners that uh, are either more engaged or less engaged or going through a process of swapping out partners for new partners is, is quite frankly, very common. And here was his take on the LRT uh, being scrapped because of lack of government support from the province and municipality. From our perspective, and based on the discussions that we were having with uh, with Metrolinx, right up until the point uh, in which the project was was cancelled, uh, we were under the impression that we were uh, full steam ahead. Uh, and even if you look at the uh, the document uh, that was released, you know, it's it's it was a risk assessment document, and it identified some mitigation strategies that uh, the province was putting in place to to handle some of these risks, which which quite frankly, again, are common on, on these big projects. You're always going to have certain risks, uh, but they were developing. Uh, mitigation strategies right up until you know early November. So uh, that suggests to us that uh, in their mind that uh, they were moving forward. All right, let's bring in Larry Diani, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Nice to be here, Scott. What's your take on this report, which I think originated from the Toronto Star? What's your thoughts on all of this? Well, you know, I'm listening to Chris Jacobson, who's a fine fellow and knew what he was doing. Um, he, he makes sense uh, to me that, uh, in fact, uh, it was a mitigation report indicating um, what would uh, need to be done should certain eventualities present themselves uh, and how to handle it and still keep the, the project forward. So <clears throat> I'm not alarmed uh, by the fact that people... Uh, who do good planning have uh, strategies uh, for what may be around the corner that might be unexpected. That's not what alarms me. Uh, there is something in there as well that indicated that, uh, you know, the, the, the people putting together the bids weren't sure that the province was fully committed and weren't sure that all of the city council, that the city was fully committed. We know that that's absolutely true. I mean, the province, uh, you know, uh, pulled the plug on, on, the, on the project, uh, which uh, gave us some idea that, uh, uh, that there was uh, justification in that, in that concern. And council was split. I mean, they had a majority of votes, but uh, we knew that uh, uh, there were some strong uh, opposing sentiments on city council as well. So I'm not alarmed by, by that report uh, at all. Um, I'm more interested, uh, frankly, at this point, uh, about the next step, and which is what the government, uh, the provincial government, has said is going to be a task force appointed by them to see uh, 
how to you know improve Hamilton's uh, transit uh, situation, which would might include LRT as well, which to me is a little strange, but but that's what's being said by the province. So what is the public to make of this? Because I'm not sure I understand exactly what you're saying here, Larry, because at the end of the day, uh, the, the report says, or, or the, the reports that we're hearing, that the, the bidders had cold feet and worrying about the province's commitment and such. Right. Uh, does that not impact whether this goes or doesn't go? I mean, is this normal practice for bidders to be queasy about something? Well, certainly for projects such as these, um, you know, which are multi-million dollar, uh, multi-year projects, uh, when, bid, when bids are prepared, and I don't know how much people understand this, when companies prepare bids, it's not just a question of sitting down with a blank sheet of paper and throwing some numbers and figures and words on that blank sheet and submitting it. I mean, there are studies that have to be done. There are uh, consultants that have to be hired. Uh, there, there are numbers that have to be justified for it to be a solid bid. And that sometimes runs into hundreds of thousands of dollars in terms of preparing the bid. And that's even before you know whether you're going to be the one bid that's going to be accepted. And so companies that go into this, they know the risk, they know the downside, uh, but, but they also have to make a decision on whether it's worth taking that risk for the reward of then uh, receiving the bid. And, and so consequently, if you have to sit down and to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in the preparation of a bid, you've got to be pretty sure that at the very least that bid is going to be looked at. And the political situation of the day, I guess, according to some of these bidders, was that they weren't sure about the provincial government's firm commitment, and they weren't sure whether the city and Hamilton Council would hang together um, in, terms of, in terms of making this project go forward. So some of them were expressing concerns, and some of them were getting some cold feet about spending all that money for the whole thing to go up in smoke, even before it's it's looked at in a real and and fair way. So you know that that's just the reality of of, of it happening. But I'm I'm also being told, and I've spoken to some folks who are close to some of the bidders anyway, that there were bids going to come in. So. You know, all of that is is academic at this point, and that's what I'm saying. Um, you know, the history is interesting, uh, but it's academic from the point of view of, okay, now where do we go? We are where we are. How do we put things together again that would benefit the municipality? And it looks as if it's going to be left up to the recommendations of a provincially appointed quartet of individuals, non-elected individuals, who are going to provide recommendations, and they've invited the city to nominate a fifth person appointed by the city, not elected as well, so it can't be one of the councillors, to sit in with this group and come up with some recommendations to give the province, and then the province will move forward. And all of this is going to happen uh, within the next couple of months, by the end of February, at least that's what I'm reading, which I think is is quite fast. Uh, but probably appropriately fast, given that a lot of the spade work has been done on alternatives. Does this, would this report have affected whether the government would continue or pull the funding then? Is this report irrelevant? 
Well, I think it's relevant from the perspective of, uh, and, and, you know, of course it was leaked, and it was a, a Metrolinks report, and it was a government uh, agency report. So it was leaked um, to suggest, well, the project was in trouble uh, even before we pulled the plug. So that there's some, you know, uh, attempt at justifying the decision, I guess. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting from, from that perspective. But when you're the one that are, is causing, when you're one of the parties that is causing the instability uh, in the first place, uh, I'm not so sure that that provides a lot of cover uh, to either the city or the, or the province. As we've mentioned before, uh, Larry, this just seemed to be a very easy project to kill because there weren't that many uh, on-site, uh, you know, it was split pretty much even. Anyway, so was this project in trouble before it was canceled, or is this just the normal practice of the bidding process? Uh, you know, I, I don't think, that if, if, the, if the province had held firm, um, I, think, um, I think that um, we would have had some bids come in, and those numbers would then have told the story as to whether this was a doable project or not. If it was so way over any projected cost estimates, then I think the project would have simply fallen uh, on its own weight. Uh, but we'll never know that because they never allowed that process to be completed. And that's the, that's the, uh, the difficult part. Now, having said that, the, and, you know, we, we need to take the government at its word, I guess. They're saying that one of the options that this quintet of individuals can look at is the LRT program. And if they come back and recommend it, I guess it's back on the rails again. But that's why... Isn't uh, that a little far-fetched when you think well, about it, Larry? Because if we were trying to find a solution to the problem, it would be a lot cheaper just to do that rather than starting from square one again. Well, and, and that's, this is why citizens and, and those of us who look closely at what's happening with government shake our heads because um, uh, how can you uh, you know kill somebody and say that it's unaffordable and then still still leave it as a viable option for people to look at? I mean, it seems contradictory to me, but I'm just telling you what the government has said. And they've said that one of the options is LRT. The other options are improvements to highways and, uh, and uh, BRT, bus rapid transit, uh, and other aspects of, uh, of the, uh, the transportation network within the city of Hamilton. So they've, they've, they've left the LRT option as uh, something to be looked at. Um, uh, but they've also expanded the number of options that maybe they'll finally land on at the end of the day once the recommendations come forward. Uh, what is the criteria for even concluding the LRT again in this in this process? Simply because haven't we been through this? Well, we have, and uh, it'll be re- it would be really interesting to be part of that group. And uh, hopefully not only will they announce who is uh, a sitting member of, of that group, and, and hopefully there will be people with open minds that will look at, in a relatively short period of time, look at fairly all of the alternatives, work that's been done, work that needs to be done as well, um, and, and make recommendations to the government. Uh, but what would be interesting, as well as knowing who these individuals are, is getting some sense of what their mandate is. What is, what is it that they're being asked to do in very clear language so that there isn't any confusion 
about what they eventually do. Uh, any idea who will be on that committee? I have no idea whatsoever. Any chance of a past mayor being on that committee? <laughs> well, um, let's see. Um, that's probably Slim and none, although he would do a good job, I hear. <laughs> um, show, so in your opinion, should the, bids pro- uh, the bid process been allowed to continue? Well, so because we are so close to, um, you know, to, to receiving those bids, uh, it, it, yes, I mean, the answer is yes. It was like, uh, you know, you, you, you can see, you can see the, uh, uh, the end zone. You're within, you know, the, 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 the yards from the end zone, and you somehow stop the game um, uh, prematurely. And it, it just, uh, yeah, I know that's a tortured sort of analogy, but you know what I mean, I think. It would have been better uh, if the government had said, look, let's see what these bids are. And by the way, if companies had not bid, then the point would have been made that there's no interest right. in, in moving forward with this. But we'll never know that. That's all conjecture at this point because it was terminated, I think, prematurely. Uh, MP Bob Bertina and former mayor has sent me an email. Metrolinks is the problem wanting to push the project. What might it cost residential taxpayers if they kept it alive? Yes, and and all of that would have become very clear. Uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, the project uh, had obstacles to overcome, uh, but we'll never know. It, it, may, have, it may have been doable. Uh, the, the federal government is a player. Speaking of, uh, of uh, Bob, who's a, um, a federal uh, MP now, and when I asked him, by the way, uh, whether the feds would uh, be supportive um, uh, of the project in terms of uh, being a partner, uh, his response was positive. Uh, certainly, Philomena Tassi, who's in cabinet, as well as one of the members uh, from the Hamilton area, uh, indicated an interest. Catherine McKenna, who had a uh, who's now the Minister of Infrastructure on a discussion with the mayor, expressed some interest as well. But we'll never know because that sort of coalition uh, that might have occurred once hard numbers were presented um, has, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it never was and never will be uh, at this point unless it's reconstituted once these, uh, these recommendations are made. So does this uh, new information change anything? I don't think it changes anything. I think I think it more or less, depending on the side you're on, if you never liked the project, it says, see, see, uh, already it was in trouble. Uh, but if you like the project, you, you blame the province or you blame those on, on council who were recalcitrant. Um, and so it's justification for your point of view. Uh, I think it's history. Uh, and we're well past that history now. We need to look at the future and, and do a good job uh, with the task at hand, which is how do we help our city uh, and how does the province commit funds uh, that they say is available in order to help our uh, public transit uh, infrastructure uh, situation in the city. Larry Deany has been with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Ben Spur. He is with us now. Ben, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, The uh, acting LRT project director for the city, Chris Jacobson, said this was all a normal part of the process. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think to some extent that that is true. I think that when you go through a big, complicated process like this, there's 
going to be, uh, you know, we have a private companies uh, bidding to, to bid on a, a big public infrastructure project. There's going to be some negotiations. There's going to be some back and forth. Um, so it's not it's not unprecedented, certainly, uh, that uh, that bidders might get cold feet. Uh, but I think what is interesting is that they specifically cited, according to this risk assessment, the the potential lack of political um, support from the project, uh, from the province and from the city. And so I think that just kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, there's been points over the last couple of years where it seemed like this project was kind of full steam ahead. It had the endorsement of city council. Uh, the new Ontario PC government said it was going to go ahead. And yet um, I think those kind of back and forth debates seem to have kind of taken a toll, at least on this bidding process, and caused some nervousness among the the, uh, the private companies uh, bidding on it. Uh, if we were to have the mayor speaking on this, I'm sure he would say the city was behind this 100%. He won an election on this in the last mm-hmm. uh, municipal election. Do you think that information is valid? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I think, uh, of, of course, he did win the election, but it just, just historically there has been some back and forth at city council. Right. Some people had pledged to, to vote against it if uh, the operating and maintenance costs, with the, which the city had agreed to share, if those ended up being too high. So there was certainly some uncertainty uh, kind of uh, lingering around the project. Does this report coming out now and the fact that bidders were a little queasy on this, does that change anything here? Um, not necessarily. I, I think, you know, I, I don't know. There are some people who are, I think will try to revive the LRT project. I think that's going to be a difficult thing to do under the, the current, um, after the, the province made the decision not to build it. But I think what really kind of struck me about this is that I think it does raise some interesting questions about the way that these um, projects are built, right? Um, back in the day, governments used to directly fund and finance big transit projects like this, but Ontario has moved to this other model, right, where it's called a P3 model, a public-private partnership, where you pay a, a private entity to, to finance and build uh, and design, do, do much of the work on it, on the uh, condition that the private entity has to uh, pay if there's any cost overruns, uh, if there's any delays, and, and governments like that because it, it kind of shifts the risk uh, for any unforeseen costs that, that tend to come up when in big uh, projects like this onto the private sector. The taxpayers don't have to pay. But I think that what this uh, story shows is that behind the scenes, um, that uh, that some of these private entities weren't really willing to take on, on that risk. There's always risk along with, with big transit projects like this. But when you add... Um, you know, a lot of political uncertainty uh, with the, the, the government involved uh, kind of waffling, then that, that adds even more risk, and then I think that makes it less attractive uh, for these private entities. So I think it does raise some questions about whether or not we're uh, building these things uh, using the right model. Hmm. Would it, in your opinion, would it have made sense to have let the bidding process continue and then make that decision? I mean, that's an interesting thing, right, because I think, you know, the, the uh, provincial government cited uh, rising costs uh, as, as the reason why they pulled the plug on the project. Um, and uh, however, it, it was going to be uh, up to these private entities. They were going to bid and say how much they could uh, uh, build it for. So it, it is a little, um, I, I mean, it'd be interesting to see, of course, right, if these uh, three uh, entities had, had uh, come up with bids and it might not have been potentially as high as, as the province feared, it might have been higher. You never know. I think that it is certainly true. I'm hearing from my contacts in the industry um, and in the uh, governments involved that, that there was genuine anxiety from pretty much everyone involved that, that the cost could increase. But it would have been interesting, of course, to see what, how much the extra costs were. And I think the proponents of the LRT uh, certainly would want to see those bids to come in. And then, you know, there's been talk about trying to uh, enlist federal funding to make up any, any shortfall that the province could cover. So it would have certainly uh, been interesting to see how much uh, the, the bids uh, valued the project at. Uh, the 
report, I'm understanding, also stated that the cost would have been more than they had anticipated, but not nearly as close to what the government said it would have cost. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of a, an interesting thing, right, because it, this is all based on the higher cost that the uh, uh, Transportation Minister, Caroline Mulroney, cited, was based on this outside third-party um, audit uh, of the of the project uh, that they paid for, but they haven't released in full. They wouldn't even tell us who the consult name of the consultant who did it. Um, this uh, document reveals who that who that is for what that's worth. Um, but uh, yeah, internally the the kind of uh, provincial budget for the project still hadn't changed as as much uh, as the uh, as the consultant eventually said it was. The consultant said it would cost five point five billion dollars, and that includes a lot of long term costs, operations, maintenance vehicles all in, not just construction, uh, the $1 billion figure that's been flying around. That's uh, just for construction. My understanding is there was an understanding among a lot of people involved that even that $1 billion figure was going to go up, but um, internally, uh, the province's budget had not changed for the project until this third-party consultant came in and came up with a much higher price. Uh, we've seen a lot of these projects go through, whether it's uh, uh, Kitchener or Mississauga or Ottawa, projects that are continuing on um, with a different model where the city's paying a third, the province is paying a third, mm-hmm. the feds are paying a third. Was Hamilton naive to think that they could get this without any cost to the municipal taxpayer? Um, I, I don't know about, about naive. I mean, uh, right now the province is building, the, it says they're going to build the big transit expansion in Toronto at no cost to Toronto taxpayers. They're building things like the Ontario line on an $11 billion project, and, and the city of Toronto is not going to pay for any of that, supposedly. Um, so I don't think that that was necessarily naive. Uh, you know, these are built with different models. What is kind of interesting, and I think uh, proponents of the LRT have complained about, is that there doesn't seem to have been any wiggle room, uh, uh, according to the province. Um, you know, the province, uh, there could have, if, you look at projects like the the Mississauga here, Ontario LRT, that was coming in over budget, so the province agreed to make some changes to the project to kind of uh, help reduce the cost. That doesn't seem to have happened with the Hamilton LRT. They just said kind of no go, and then the project is cancelled. So I think um, I'm still trying to understand a little bit about why perhaps it wasn't uh, a push to, to get federal funding to maybe make modifications to the project uh, to uh, to reduce the cost. That doesn't have seem to be something that the province wanted to do, and I'm not quite uh, sure why. Uh, the government says, uh, Caroline Malroney says that there is a task force being formed and will include some members of the city, not necessarily or not elected officials, on what to do with the $1 billion that they say they're still going to spend uh, on the city, and that LRT is still an option. Is, is that just lip service? I mean, if LRT was still an option, as you said, why would they have not done more to keep it on the rails? It, yeah, that's a little. I'm, I'm unclear on that. And, and to be fair, I haven't uh, asked the province a lot about this. So perhaps um, some other reporters at the, at the Spectator, for instance, might might know a bit more about that. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I, it's difficult to see. You know, they've announced that the LRT is cancelled. Uh, it looks like the whole procurement process for it, all the people bidding on it, that that process is done. So if you were going to build a similar LRT or something, you would sort of think that you would not cancel the entire project. You would kind of make modifications, but that doesn't seem to be the route. So I, I'm a little unclear on what type of LRT they're, they're contemplating here. 
What should the public take away from this latest information? How do they decipher this? How do they cut through it? Is it relevant? Is it not relevant? Uh, what should what should the average Hamiltonian make of this? Yeah, I guess I was just curious about when I saw this information, just because it's pretty rare that we get this information uh, while a process, while a project is kind of um, uh, being considered, right? Uh, governments are usually pretty hold this information close to their chest. Uh, and so I think it is pretty significant, uh, as I say, that the kind of political back and forth seems to have taken a toll uh, on, on the project seems to have caused some cold feet. Um, and, and I think, again, that, that sort of raises questions about um, how how we uh, build these projects, how we procure them. Is it always wise to uh, shift a lot of the risk for any cost overruns onto, uh, or delays onto private entities when 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 the governments are doing things that, that could add to that risk? I mean, if you recall, the province actually paused funding on the LRT uh, for about seven months right. starting in August of 2018. So if you're a private company that's kind of trying to invest a a lot of uh, money into to working on a design, to to working on a bid for this project. I mean, what message does that send to you, right? Is that is that something you want to invest a lot of time in and uh, put in a competitive bid if you're not even sure that the governments are going to go forward with it? So I think it just speaks to maybe some. Um, uh, you know, admittedly, pretty pretty technical and, and difficult to grasp aspects of the the process, but I think it's important to to think about how we uh, get these projects over the line and uh, what's the best way to go about that. Uh, this information seems to be directed at those who were against the LRT. Is this is this information? Is this leak coming from the provincial government in order uh, to say, see, the bidders were were queasy about it anyway? I uh, of course can't say anything about my sources. That's no, one job of reporting. To, to protect us, so I can't say how it came about, but um, certainly, I, I don't know, it's, I think it's interesting, it, it seems to me that uh, just you know, some of the reactions to the story, kind of people on both sides of pro-LRT and anti-LRT seems to, seem to think that this perhaps bolsters their, their case, so I'm not sure exactly what to make of that, but uh, obviously there's still some pretty deep divisions about the project out there. Um, uh, and again, this may not be uh, your watch, but the, mil- the billion dollars that they, stay, that they say they're still going to spend on uh, infrastructure projects, uh, was there any chatter about that or as to where it, that money may go, or, or, or there's even been chatter that it may be used for highway projects as opposed to transportation or uh, transit projects? Yeah, yeah. I think we'll have to wait and see exactly how that's uh, how, uh, how that's used. I, I think that idea of, of building the additional highways is, has raised a lot of eyebrows among transportation expert, uh, experts. I mean, the GTHA. I, I don't know that we need more more highways, more people driving on the roads. I think that a lot of experts would say that that's only going to add to congestion. Um, and so, uh, public transit projects are really the, the wisest investment. Um, so, yeah, it was certainly interesting to hear the idea that perhaps more highways uh, could be uh, uh, used, uh, could be paid for with that money. In your mind, is this story dead or will this still have legs? Uh, as a transit reporter, <laughs> I, I tend to think that uh, these things never quite go away. I think that uh, we're going to be hearing about uh, LRTs and, and uh, you know, that's just the outcome of that task force. It's going to be very, very um, interesting to watch. Maybe we'll end up with something kind of in the middle, a, a BRT, a bus rapid transit right. project, uh, something like that, which is uh, starting to get a little more popular in the region. So, yeah, I think we're going to be talking about this for a little while, which is uh, good for me. All right, Ben Spur has been with us from the Toronto Star. The column, Hamilton LRT bidders pull back on participating months before cancellation. Internal documents show Ben Spur from the Toronto Star. Ben, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. It is 1249. Uh, fascinating information. Um, but again, I- I'm not sure how this alters the project 
uh, moving forward. Uh, some say this is all part of the normal procuring uh, procuring process that, uh, you know, many times uh, the players may rotate, may move around a little bit, may change and such. Um, but again, it just seems odd that this project was canceled before any of those bidders uh, got a chance to uh, actually state and, and, and bring some numbers forth and if they were actually interested in bidding the pro- and bidding on the project. Uh, but clearly there have been rumblings ever since this uh, thing all came to pass that many, were, many even after it was approved, were still betting that it was not going to go. And it appears at this point anyway, uh, they still were they they were right. Uh, I still think back on the conversation I had with Kathleen Wynne when she was still Premier of the province, and we were talking about LRT, and she had come into the town and presented uh, her her her, uh, her her project and and what they were going to do and the win- and the one billion dollars that they were going to supply for it, and then months after we were still debating this that or the other, and I remember her giggling on the phone, laughing, saying, "I, I don't know why we're still all debating this. We should be moving forward on it." And uh, you have to wonder if dragging the heels. Now I know obviously one, after the election, the provincial government, uh, the conservatives slowed all this this down and, until they figured out what was going on. But you kind of wonder if this is a pipe dream uh, right from the beginning. Uh, the Star article, Hamilton LRT bidders pull back on participating months before the cancellation internal document show. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's uh, head down south of the border and see what the reaction has been so far uh, and uh, to the U.S. taking out the uh, main military man in Iran and and the reaction, the fallout to that, no one is denying that this person is uh, responsible for the deaths of many uh, U.S. and ally citizens. And uh, now that he is uh, off the planet, I don't think too many are crying over that. However, the concern is what happens next. Is that any reason not to take him out? Let's bring in Larry Haas, Senior Fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council and on the line with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Nice to be here, Scott. Thank you. So was taking out Iran's top military general overkill, or is this good strategy? Well, the question is, uh, is it part of a coherent strategy, or is, is it just a tactical move that hasn't been well thought out in terms of the likely next steps uh, by Tehran and the necessity of likely next steps by the United States in response to those steps by Tehran. As you said in your introduction, no one should cry uh, any tears for this person. Uh, He was, you know, evil incarnate, uh, responsible, as you say, for hundreds, if not thousands of deaths over the course of time. The top military figure for the most aggressive state sponsor of terrorism anywhere in the world, and that's the uh, Islamic uh, Republic. Uh, the question in my mind really is, and it's, and I don't think the administration is doing itself any good with all these conflicting signals it's sending, but what, what in essence is the overriding strategy and what is the long-term goal? And I don't think that's very clear to people in Washington, to Americans around the country, or to our allies in Europe and elsewhere. On that note, uh, what sort of plan needs to be in place before you do such a thing? Obviously, lots are questioning whether Donald Trump has a plan B, C, and D, but what sort of, what sort of uh, prerequisite is needed before you make such a move? 
Well, a variety of things, but at the very least, all of the following. Uh, game, game playing of some kind in which uh, people around the president would be calibrating what are the Iranians likely to do and what are we going to need to be prepared to do in response to that. So that's number one. Number two, uh, ensuring the safety of Americans in the region and elsewhere uh, who might be in harm's way uh, as a result of, you know, the next Iranian uh, action and consultation, uh, certainly with, uh, you know, the major leaders in Congress of both parties, as well as our allies, both, you know, north of our border where you are and in Europe and elsewhere, you know, the so that so that the people we need to support our action are not surprised. Uh, I can't speak for everything that's happened, uh, you know, internally, but I'm concerned that because of the conflicting signals that we're getting from the administration about likely next steps, um, and also because of the the proof that we have that the president has not done the uh you know the typical consultation that one would do a president would do shortly before an event of this kind um i'm concerned about how much the administration really has thought this through uh we've heard reports that the pentagon provided the president with a list of options here for retaliation on uh what had happened to date and around the u.s embassy the killing of the american businessman and such uh would the pentagon not have that plan in place or uh, uh, at least some guidelines of it before giving that to the president as an option yes one would think that the pentagon uh would have behind each of the options that it gave the president some understanding of you know what that measure would mean and what the united states would need to be prepared for but just keep in mind you know the pentagon just like the state department just like the national security council you know uh, is an advisory body uh there's only one person who makes decisions so what i'm really questioning is how much did the president ask in terms of when he saw this as a possibility on a list of things that the United States could do, how much did he ask, what is this going to mean? What will the Iranians do in response? What do we need to be prepared to do in response to what the Iranians may do? I do, I do not know either way whether the president um, uh, did or did not go through that kind of a discussion. But I do know that there are all sorts of com- conflicting statements that are coming out of Washington in terms of, you know, the imminence of the threat, uh, what we might or might not do next, and all the rest that, you know, it gives people like me and, and others some pause as to, you know, whether the administration is speaking with one voice and how much coherent thought has gone into this you know, not just by the Pentagon, but by the full national security apparatus, and most importantly, by the president. 
Um, uh, you talked about the reasoning for this attack. Uh, uh, Secretary of State uh, Pompeo said that there was another attack imminent, that they were doing this in a self-defense uh, sort of mode. Here's what he had to say. What we could clearly see, we're continuing efforts on behalf of this terrorist to build out a network of campaign activities that were going to lead potentially to the death of many more Americans. Department of Defense did excellent work, uh, and the president had a uh, entirely legal, appropriate, and a basis as well as a decision that fit perfectly within our strategy and how to counter the threat of malign activity from Iran more broadly. Uh, that is Secretary of State Pompeo. Larry Haas is with a senior fellow at American Foreign Policy Council. Um, your thoughts on that clip. Was there a threat or just there's always an ongoing threat with these people? We've seen that cer- certainly historically. Or was there a specific event coming that was planned? Well, I didn't hear the Secretary of State in that clip talk about the imminence of a particular threat. I have no doubt that everything that he said is true in terms of Soleimani being in charge of an effort to expand the network of, you know, potential activities all throughout the region in which Americans as well as other adversaries uh, would be would be targeted. That has been the history of the Islamic Republic ever since the revolution of 1979. But Immediately after this killing, the administration said there was an imminent threat. That is, they needed to act to prevent something else from taking place. I didn't hear the Secretary of State say that just now. And so it raises the question, and again, I'm, I'm not shedding any tears for this gentleman, and it is a good thing that he's no longer able to conduct uh, military operations against the United States and other Western interests. But it does raise the question, if we're talking about just the ongoing Iranian activity to try to increase its capacity, whether we could have addressed that in more tactical ways, like, for instance, the Israelis are doing right now as uh, Iran tries to uh, install itself with a military presence in Syria on a permanent basis, and the Israelis, as we've seen through a variety of bombing attacks, uh, simply are, n- uh, are not going to let Iran do that. So I don't want to second-guess the administration too much. I'm not privy to the intelligence, but I do think it's striking that um, they're not sharing the intelligence you know, with senior members of, of Congress in any detail that one would think that they would if they were confident about the intelligence behind this strike. On a strike of this size, how much are allies normally involved? At what point are they brought in? What are they told? What were they not told this time? Well, I can't answer the second part of your question. I don't know the extent to which the president may have made phone calls. My impression is he probably didn't, only because he didn't tell the bipartisan leadership of Congress, which which is much more of a routine thing. Um, you know, in the major capitals, which would include certainly London and Paris, if not Ottawa and others, a handful of trusted allies probably would get a heads up uh, within the hours before this action, not necessarily to ask for permission, but simply to say this is where 
uh, we're headed and this is why. Um, I don't know that the president either did or didn't do that, but I suspect that he did not because, as I said a second ago, he did not even inform the bipartisan leadership of Congress that he was going to do it. And certainly that's the kind of thing he would have done perhaps an hour, an hour and a half before taking this action. How concerned uh, should Americans be in regard to retaliation? Uh, many are concerned, as we were talking earlier, that there is no plan for this. Uh, many hoping that the Pentagon, when they made this suggestion, uh, has, the, has the plan to follow through after this sort of thing uh, happens. But I think what makes this even more um, more confusing is the mixed messaging that seems to be coming from the White House. And an example of that, uh, the president tweeting that he, he could possibly go over, uh, go after cultural sites uh, in the Middle East. And, and we all know that that is a war crime. Pompeo contradicts that and says, hey, we're going to do all this within the law. Uh, how much does that mixed messaging just put a blanket over everything and, and just leave one believing that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing? Well, look, I think that um, that is probably the most concerning aspect of the aftermath of this strike. Of all the ideas that I have heard, that is without a doubt the worst. Uh, the idea that the United States would, uh, would somehow uh, now attack cultural sites, not only is it a war crime, but it is precisely the wrong thing to do in terms of a long-term strategy. Our enemy, our adversary, is not the people of Iran. It is a very malevolent, uh, nefarious, evil regime that is largely unpopular within the country, mistreats its people, doesn't provide political freedom, uh, doesn't provide really very much by way of economic opportunity um, at a time of a sinking economy across that country. Um, we should be building alliances with the Iranian people, uh, not uh, attacking their cultural sites, will, which will only, only incline them to rally behind the regime as opposed to, you know, um, stay separate from the regime, which is where they've largely been for the last 40 years. Uh, we all saw the clips of uh, millions marching and, and protesting and mourning the death of this leader. Uh, how does that... How does that play in the rest of the world? Well, probably uh, more effectively uh, than uh, really reflects reality. I don't know the extent to which the government is orchestrating uh, massive protests, is encouraging people to come out uh, for the funeral. Uh, so you get, you know, one segment of the population reflected, which is, you know, devout uh, loyal to the regime, loyal to the revolutionary fervor, but it doesn't mean that it really reflects mass public opinion in a country of 80 million uh, people. But certainly in terms of, you know, the television uh, uh, pictures and uh, television reels and videos, you do get the sense that the Iranian people are rallying behind their regime uh, in opposition to the United States. There's no question about it. Is this a win for Donald Trump? 
It's hard to it's hard for uh, Americans, I'm guessing, to figure out what is real, what isn't real here, uh, what is politics, what is good strategy. It is all dependent on the aftermath. No one going into the voting booth in 2020 is going to care that the president killed someone that they that for the most part they had never heard of. Uh, the question really is, just like when you think about um, presidents flying high at the beginning of a, of a conflict and then losing support as chaos ensues, Vietnam, Iraq, Korea, other uh, long-term military ventures, where are we going to be in six months? That is the key question, not whether or not the president... Um, uh, killed a military figure in a foreign country. Are we involved in a quagmire? Are we in chaos? Do Americans feel fearful that uh, we're in great danger because of what the president has gotten us into? That's the question. Not not where we are today. Where we're going to be in a few months. How much of this, in your mind, is a distraction for the impeachment trial? How does the impeachment trial fit into all of this? Very hard to say. It's a distraction just, a, just in terms of reality. I mean, this is obviously the number one thing, uh, appropriately so, that is on the minds of leaders of both parties in Washington. Uh, it complicates the impeachment trial because it's just one more thing that the same people who need to figure out the impeachment trial uh, need to focus on. So obviously their attention... Uh, is split. I don't want to believe that the president took this action to distract attention from impeachment. Uh, so I'm going to trust that he did not. Uh, you know, I just don't want to believe that we're taking military action, uh, you know, for political reasons. Uh, so I'll, I will, uh, I will choose to trust that if I, hmm. if I find out otherwise, and we talk again, then obviously, uh, we'll talk about it. But uh, in terms of your question, is it distracting? Yes, absolutely. It's distracting uh, because it's more important at the moment than the impeachment trial is. Will the Democrats delaying uh, the impeachment filing of the impeachment papers? Uh, does this will this backfire on them? Is it does it do oh, them, does I, it do them would, justice look, to drag I, this out? I I would answer the same way I answered your question about you know, the political impact uh, for Donald Trump of the of the murder. Uh, the question isn't, you know, where are we today? The question is, where are we in six months? I could see a reason for Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi not sending the articles of impeachment over to the Senate because uh, she fears that the Republican leadership is going to do some sort of a sham trial and not take this as seriously as they should. Uh, that may that argument may have resonance with people around the country, uh, but will it have resonance with people around the country in three months or in six months? Will the Trump base uh, come out to vote in such high numbers because they're outraged by the strategy, more so than progressives who want to get rid of Donald Trump? It's a very hard thing uh, to predict, but I wouldn't pay any attention to polls today. I'd, pee, I'd, I'd, I'd see where we are, again, with Iran as well as with impeachment 
six m- months from now. It'll be much more of a of a telling matter then than it is today. Uh, the other day there was talk of uh, Iraq booting uh, troops out. Uh, uh, there's even been talk of Donald Trump pulling troops out. Uh, is this going to be a reason for him to get out of the region? Well, that would conflict with what he just did. Which is sending in I mean, a whole pile he, of troops, he, yeah. He has just, you know, gotten us further into the region because we are, he is... Um, taking action in response to Iranian provocation, and he has just sent 3,000 additional troops to the region. So, I mean, I certainly understand your question in terms of previous things he has said about wanting to pull back and get America less involved in the world, but I just have to say that whether it's his full-throated support of Israel or his action against Soleimani, or his sending of 3,000 more troops to the region, or, frankly, even his um, decision not to fully withdraw from Syria, I, I don't see us withdrawing from the greater Middle East anytime soon. Larry Haas has been with us, Senior Fellow at American Foreign Policy Council. Larry, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Nice to be here, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.